I'm Jack Cacciarella. And I'm Aaron Parnas. And this is Zoomed In. On this week's episode of Zoomed In, we will be discussing the current situation in Afghanistan, the IPCC's newest climate report, and then we will be joined by Voters of Tomorrow Executive Director Santiago Mayer for an interview and our first ever action item. After that, we will finish our episode with a new segment, Tweets of the Week. Ah, Jack, I am excited about today's episode. I am psyched. (laughs) With that, let's zoom in. Aaron, let's hit the headlines. Let's do it, Jack. So on Monday, we saw the collapse of the Afghan government as the Taliban retook control of Afghanistan. In a speech later that day, President Biden admitted that the collapse happened more quickly than the U.S. government had anticipated, while still insisting that ending America's 20-year war was the correct decision. No, it was pointed out on Twitter that many Republicans are now backtracking on their previous vigorous support for the withdrawal in Afghanistan. So, Aaron, how do you view the Republican Party's framing of this withdrawal and their overall response to the situation right now? Honestly, I would just frame it in one word. It was a failure. It was a failure, not just on the Republican part, but on everyone's part uh, for over the past 20 years. Um, and for the past 20 years, we have been involved in a war that has cost American taxpayers billions, if not trillions of dollars, has cost our troops thousands of lives overseas for really, for, for nothing. Um, it was a war that we got into under false pretenses and a war that we shouldn't have, we shouldn't have started in the first place. And Republicans tend to forget that the person who started that war was President Bush, who is a Republican. Um, so now for them to backtrack on their um, already backtracking on President mm-hmm. Bush's, um, on what President Bush did, it's really sad to see. And it's unfortunate that they continue to choose to play politics with such a tense and such a really unfortunate issue. Because at the end of the day, I really think everyone, no matter what party, no matter what letter you have next to your name, you should want the best for the Afghan people because they're the ones ultimately suffering right now. Uh, And I completely agree. This should not be a a partisan issue. It's not a partisan issue. The Trump administration had stated that they wanted all troops uh, withdrawn from Afghanistan by May of 2021. Um, Obviously, this is something that's been conducted under the Biden administration. This should not be partisan. This should be about you know, real uh, reevaluating how we engage militarily uh, and, and reconsider the lives that we are losing in order to sacrifice wars that we can't win. Uh, and, and that's what was done by both the Trump and the Biden administration. Uh, and, and, you know, Aaron, we saw in, in President Biden's speech that uh, President Biden blamed Afghanistan's armed forces for not standing up to the Taliban's uh, offensive attack. And, and Biden stated, Afghanistan's political leaders gave up and fled the country and the Afghan military collapsed, uh, sometimes without trying to fight, adding, if anything, the developments of the past week reinforce that ending U.S. military involvement in Afghanistan now was the right decision. So how do you think that President Biden and the Biden administration handled the withdrawal as a whole? I mean, I think that the Biden administration did follow through on their promises during the campaign, follow through on the promises of President Obama, President Trump, um, and honestly follow through on something that the American people have supported overwhelmingly for the past 10 or so years. I think the, the blame here really falls squarely on President Ghani and the Afghanistan and the Afghan government because they didn't have a plan in place for this. They knew that the Taliban was slowly closing in. 
they didn't have a comprehensive plan, um, not, not just to defend the capital um, and defend against these insurgent attacks, but also in case the capital fell like it did on Monday to help the Afghan people in some kind of transitional government or just something um, to allow them to leave the country instead of this just mad dash. I mean, we see pictures with um, Afghan citizens um, holding onto American planes as they fly away and falling um, to their death. I mean, you really see that, and, and this has shown many people that there is something worth dying for and that's freedom, freedom from tyranny, freedom from oppression. And that's what these Afghan citizens want. They want freedom. Um, and, and it's really telling to see that people are willing to literally die to reach America because we are the freest country in the world. We are that beacon of hope. Listen, I, I wish the Afghan government did the same. I wish the Afghan government really treated their citizens better, but they failed them, Jack. And, and, I, and I think with having that said, uh, we're going to see over the next couple of, of days or weeks, whatever it may be, that you know the Republican Party is going to want to uh, you know, plan an all-out attack on the Biden administration for what they did with this withdrawal. But I think we can both agree that there will be plenty of time to litigate, uh, litigate this, this yes. withdrawal. And what's most important right now is the pertinent issue of you know, aiding the humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan and bringing our allies to safety. And, and that's the most important thing, not, you know, what Lauren Boebert wants to tweet oh or, you know, what Matt Gates is going to say or, or anything to that degree. What, what matters most is, is helping our allies right now. And, you know, we talked about it, reevaluating what, you know, what it's worth for us to fight these endless wars. We, we have been at war for 90% of your life, Aaron, <laughs> in Afghanistan, 100% of mine. And there has been so much money spent that could have been and so many lives lost that could have, you know, we could have invested in America. And, and it, it is truly disappointing to see what, what happened in Afghanistan on, on Monday and what has continued to happen. I agree. Um, um, and honestly, this just shows that we need to continue investing in America before crises like this arise or, uh, or internationally, but also domestically. And that kind of transitions perfect to our something else that I saw last week. The International Panel on Climate Change released a report presenting clear and unequivocal evidence of the human impact on climate change. The UN Secretary General referred to the IPCC report as quote, code red for humanity. Um, we have hit historic highs in temperature. The amount of carbon dioxide in the air is at record levels and the burning of fossil fuels has warmed the planet by about 1.1 degrees Celsius. Jack, as someone who is young, um, as someone who nece hasn't necessarily felt the effects of this climate crisis for the past 40 or 50 years, how have you been impacted by climate change as a young person? Well, you know, we are we are both Floridians, so we can see it every day. Aaron, I, I think you can maybe even tell a better story down living in Miami and South Florida in the way that climate change has, has affected our state. But I think something we can see very clearly as young people is when we cry out for our future and the existential threat that is climate change, we hear nothing. Um, in a sad way, Climate change has been one of the best energizing factors in getting young people like ourselves involved in politics because we see if we leave our future up to you know, politicians who, who don't want to do anything about a literal existential threat to our planet, then nothing will happen. 
we know that it is incumbent to us to solve this problem. And, and that's tough as an 18 year old to know that the future of the planet kind of rests on your shoulders, but, but it pushes us young people to really get involved in politics and care. So, you know, we could talk about the storms that have devastated our country or the floods or the wildfires or the other environmental crises that have, that have taken place. But, you know, we can focus on ways to, to solve those problems and focus on ways that will get young people involved in solving those problems and getting involved politically in a way that we can actually build a better future and hit some of those goals outlined in the IPCC report of how we can sort of turn this around in our last chance effort. Yeah, no, I, I fully agree with you. And I think that the entire country sees um, what what climate change can really do, what global warming can really do. I mean, it's not it doesn't take a fool to recognize the fact that we have more category four and category five hurricanes now than we've ever done before. We have one almost every year and they're hitting the United States. They're causing dev devastation. But here in Miami, climate change is really felt on a more personal level. I'm, I live in Brickell, which is kind of the financial district of, of Miami. And every time we have a storm, whether it's a small storm or a large storm, the streets flood. Why? Because we're so close to the sea level that any rise in sea level, the brickle will be flooded. And that's not uncommon to most communities in Miami. I mean, we have some communities that are only four inches above sea level, other communities that are only a few feet above sea level. If, the, if global warming continues and climate change continues and our seas get warmer, the ice continues to melt, you're gonna have places that are gonna, that are gonna be inundated with water with, uh, because of the rising sea levels. And we still have time to fix it, but we don't have much time. Um, yeah. And, and, and building off of that, Aaron, what do you think that young people like ourselves and others can do in shaping this narrative around climate change? And that, and that term now sort of bothers me, calling it climate change, because when, when we say change, we, we think of a, a slow moving process, something that's happening gradually. Instead of this immediate crisis that we see right now, you talked about it literally hitting close to home yeah. to, for you because- where you live is, is flooded sometimes. Yeah. And we need to change the terminology and the language that we use and, and give it more immediacy and, and get people to understand that this isn't a far off problem, that this is something this is something that's happening right now. So, so how do we do that? How do we shape that language and how do we shape that discussion, Aaron? I think it's really two parts. I think one, education, education, education. I think this continued outreach, this continued push Educate, Say one more time, education, education, education. To, to, to educate both younger folks, but also older folks who have been around for a while who have felt more of these effects um, to see, to show them that, listen, we can change and their lives won't be impacted that much. And if we do change, we can actually fix um, or at least curb or limit the impact of climate change. And I think second is really this go big or go home philosophy that's been pushed by a lot of progressive Democrats. Uh, I don't agree necessarily with the Green New Deal or everything in it. I mean, it definitely has some good parts, but that is what we need. And as far as the go big or go home attitude that we can then look at, pick apart and figure out what, what, how we can push forward as a society. I mean, the Green New Deal was not, I don't know if it was ever meant to pass as written and I, and I doubt it will. I mean, I don't agree with it as written, but I think it has some good parts that we can really using that go big or go home mentality that we can really utilize and push for um, and, and that'll help communities all around the country. 
Um, yeah, and you bring up a great point, which is something that we're seeing in the in the infrastructure package. It's a three point five trillion dollar infrastructure pa- uh, package. It's you know, uh, the Biden administration is trying to pass right now, uh, and, and we're possibly seeing some some cuts to the the level of spending. And, and you brought up this point there that you know, go big or go home. We can agree that more spending is not always the solution, but better spending is. Yes. Um, and, I, and I think progressives uh, and Democrats should not be, I, I don't want to say too concerned with the number on this final infrastructure package, because that, that is important. But I think what we should be looking at is what aspects of, you know, gr- uh, green energy and, and climate infrastructure are being paid for and, and in what significant way. And that's the most important thing. Uh, making targeted efforts to to fix our broken infrastructure and to fight against climate change more so than anything. That's what's going to be most important. And, and that's what's most important for young people is the targeted efforts. And I think we can be a part of those and we need to advocate on behalf of those uh, because if we don't know the correct ways to spend, then spending is not going to do anything for us. 100%. Um, and I think, that honestly, one of the ways to limit that is to limit the amount of quote-unquote riders that congressional members could attach to all these big budget bills. Um, these last minute riders that, for example, fund $2 million a year for a public bathroom in Chicago, or um, just these random projects that could be important in some way, shape or form, but aren't, aren't really solving the issues that many of us are facing today. Um, I do think we need to worry about the price tag. I do disagree in that sense. I, I think that too much spending is very bad. And when we say we don't worry about the price tag, you open it up to spend what, five, six, $10 million on a package where that money's not, or not million trillion, where that, that money's really not gonna go um, or be put to proper use. So I think we need, like, a, like you said, a targeted package, one that's gonna help the American people. And I think that the Biden $3.5 million package, I think it's a good one. I don't think it'll end, I don't think it'll pass as, as written, um, but I think Anywhere from about 2.5 to 3.5 million is exactly where we need. I said in our last week, last week's episode, Republicans spent two trillion dollars on tax cuts. We can spend two trillion or three trillion on infrastructure, on climate, on healthcare, on all of these other things that um, that the Democratic Party stands for. Um, so, Jack, to to that point, how do you see that the Biden administration, um, or how would you like the Biden administration to kind of promote this new package? I, I think they should be. Uh, I think they should be transparent on how, how much climate, uh, how, how targeted climate is in this bill. I think that there is always concern within the Biden administration. You see this with vaccine hesitancy that they don't necessarily want to publicize an issue too much out of fearing they will uh, politicize it. Um, and, and I don't think we should feel that way when talking about climate. I don't think we should be afraid to be wrong uh, I'm not afraid to be wrong. I don't think we should be afraid to be right. I apologize when talking about climate. Climate spending needs to happen. I, I know we can discuss the amount of spending and we can disagree on the amount of spending, but climate spending needs to happen. We need to address that right now. It is an existential threat. We need to address it right now. And I don't think the Biden administration should be afraid to say that and be honest about it and say, we need spending. And so we are going to spend. Look outside your window, see fire, see floods, see category five storms. Like this is, this is pressing now. So I think, I think they should be honest in, in the way that they're shaping this bill and, and talk about the climate package. that's part of it in a very significant way, because 
It's significant. It's important. And it's important to the people who elected Joe Biden. And, and I think that, you know, they should keep that in mind. Yep, I fully agree with you. And Jack, um, before we hop off for this episode, breaking news, the Biden administration is expected to advise most Americans should get COVID booster shots eight months after being fully vaccinated. I know I'm going to get my COVID booster shot as quickly as possible. Tell the viewers, are you going to get the COVID booster shot? I will absolutely be getting it. But my only question is, does that mean I get more Krispy Kreme donuts? Because if it is, I, I might so. get two <laughs> booster shots. I might get three booster shots. Uh, the shots are going to be great for my health. The donuts aren't, but I don't really care. Uh, I am, uh, as some people may know, I'm moving to New England soon. I'm going to be moving to New Hampshire uh, to start college. Uh, and they do not have a lot of Krispy Kremes up there. So I got to take advantage before I leave. Um, that is That is good news in the fight against COVID. And that is bad news in my fight against calories. As Like I said, I will be consuming all of the donuts possible. Um, and with that, we have hit the headlines and we are going to go ahead and jump into our interview with Voters of Tomorrow Executive Director Santiago Mayer. So please stick around. Today, we are thrilled to welcome an incredible guest. You may know him from his hilarious and insightful Twitter commentary or as the Executive Director of Voters of Tomorrow. Welcome to Zoomed In, Santiago Mayor. We are so excited to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. So Santiago, so, let's jump yeah. right into it. Why don't you tell our um, listeners a little bit about your background um, and why you started this organization called Voters of Tomorrow? Yeah, so I moved to the United States. I'm originally from Mexico City and I moved to the United States in 2017. And in Mexico, I did a lot of model United Nations, and I was really a fan of international politics. So once I moved to the United States, it was the middle of the Trump administration, and I moved in the midst of the Muslim ban. And I kept asking people around in school, asking teachers, asking other students what they thought about everything that was going on. And most of them either didn't know what was happening, or for those who did know, they didn't know enough to form an opinion. And I decided to actually start get voicing my thoughts on it. So I started tweeting out my different takes and everything the Trump administration was doing. And for one reason or another, it's still unclear, but that took off. And as we got closer to the election, I decided to really tap into my audience and use it for something good. So I started Voters of Tomorrow in 2019 to really get young people educated, engaged, and represent in politics. I mean, we are going to be the decision makers. We're going to be here the longest. So we really should have a seat at the table. I mean, that table is going to be ours at some point. So we might as well fight to sit in it right now. Right. Absolutely. And, and Santiago, you, met, uh, you mentioned... Um, how you've you know come to come to prominence on Twitter uh, and, and your success on that platform, and often you've you've posed yourself as a sort of foil um, to Republican and knockoff Matt Gates, Charlie Kirk. Uh, you have um, you know you've you've compared yourself to him in, in a way that you know you are trying to use your platform to message uh, to young Democrats uh, across the country, while he is using his platform to spread misinformation, hate on behalf of the Republican Party. Um, what do you think that the Democratic Party can do uh, and Democrats uh, across the country to uplift voices like yours um, in, in the same way that the GOP has done uh, with people like Charlie Kirk? How, how can Democrats uplift young voices to be successful? 
uh, like Republicans have. Yeah, let me start by saying that I don't think Charlie Kirk is the best comparison. I mean, I, I use him as a foil mostly because he's the most prominent, relatively young person in the Republican Party. And he uses his platform, like you said, for grifting and miseducating and misinforming young voters. And I, I really try and be and be the exact opposite from him. I mean, mm-hmm. my audience is not nearly as big as his, but I really try and use it for the complete opposite. I, I try to use it to educate people, to get them excited, to get them engaged, to get them to find the same excitement in politics than I do. And listen, the, Rep- the Democratic Party has a lot of good people in it. I There's a lot of politicians that I like. There's a lot of party people that I like. But what they really don't have is anything that allows young people to place themselves and elevate themselves in it. Mm. And we've, we've talked about this with people in the party, and I, I, I have done that myself. And it's, it's really annoying how they continue to, ge- to give more credence to people in, the, in a higher age range. I mean, one of, during a conversation about young people, one of the things that they brought up is how they're, tar- they're really investing in the 18 to 34 segment. And I try to get them to understand that a 34-year-old with two children and a mortgage does not have the same issues that an 18-year-old college freshman does. Yeah. But they group us together. And until they do that, until they stop doing that and really start listening to the many young people that they have backing them, they really won't succeed in being able to tap that excitement and use it for their own political benefit. I mean, I, I agree with you 100% actually. Um, have you, so a lot of people say that millennials are a lot more left-leaning while the Gen Z folks are, we're, we're slowly pushing to the right a little bit. Um, do you see that divide? Um, and if so, how do you combat that push to the right that us and Gen Z are really feeling right now? I don't think we're any more conservative than millennials. I think what's actually happening is we were born into a world that is so... Can I curse in here? I really hope I can curse in here. Absolutely. Of course. Oh, fuck yes. So <laughs> Yeah, we go were, for it. Come on. We were born in a world that is just so fucking chaotic that it is. it would be unwise and unrealistic to try and pursue the goals that millennials have using the same strategies that they have. So I don't see us as any more conservative. I see us as a lot more pragmatic. We understand that in order to achieve those goals, we have to work within the system. In order to reform the system, we have to use the system. And as ironic or kind of weird as that sounds, it's clearly working. I mean, Generation C is making such a big impact on everything from politics to media to entertainment. And that's because we understand that the only way we can actually save the world, because that's the stake at this point, we're saving the world. But the only way to save the world is to work with other people who have maybe not our same goals, but similar goals. And if we want to have, if we want to, if we want to get policies into action, we have to work with the people who have that power, even if we don't love them or agree with them. And Gen Z understands that. So again, I, I don't consider us any more conservative. I consider us a lot more pragmatic. Hmm. I think that's a great way to frame it. Um, and, and you talked about the influence of Gen Z in, in every aspect of politics. Uh, what is Voters of Tomorrow doing to lead that charge and, and really bring incredible young people together 
to accomplish the goals that they are able to once they have other large networks of young people to help them succeed and to help them make real change? Yeah, I mean, Voters of Tomorrow is really just fighting to get young people engaged because the only way we're going to elect more people who truly believe in democracy and believe in political participation and believe that things such as climate change or gun violence or existential threats to our lives is by getting those, is by voting those people in. And the only way to do that is by getting engaged. So the first thing that we're working on is going to college campuses, getting in people's social media, being in everyone's face, as ugly as that sounds, that's really the only way to do it. And making sure that they understand that politics isn't something you can just sign out of. Politics mm-hmm. affects everything from your student council to the presidency, everything has to do with politics. And if you are not a part of it, you're giving power to make, to someone who may have goals that are completely different from you. So that's, yeah. that's the first one. The other one is we're really working to make sure that people understand government. And that means sometimes working with people who are not old enough to vote yet. So 14, 15, 16, 17 year olds who don't have the right to vote yet, but will have it soon. And we want them to understand civics. We want them to understand history. We want them to understand, and this also applies to older people, the inner workings of government so that Mm -hmm. they know where to to enact pressure. So something like maybe something like the filibuster, a lot of people don't know what a filibuster is. By by making sure that they understand what the filibuster is, we're able to then run campaigns encouraging the Senate to abolish the filibuster because it's the only way that we're going to be able to enact really necessary voter protection laws. Finally, we're also working within government to help represent young people. And listen, not all not all of Gen Z agrees on everything, but at least we agree that some of the main issues affecting us are real. Like we might not all agree on how to best fight climate change, but right. most of us at least agree that climate change is real. And there is really no one in government fighting to make sure that junk people are represented. Tobacco has a lobby. Pharma has a lobby. The military industrial complex clearly has a lobby. But <laughs> young, young people really don't have anyone fighting for them. So Warsaw Tomorrow is working to get us to get elected officials to hear young people's voices and to make sure that they understand that if they, they're not listening to, their, to younger voters, they're going to get voted out sooner rather than later. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with every a lot of what you're saying, and I think it's so important. Something that I um, want to highlight is the fact that in Florida, particularly, you can be 16 years old, 15 years old, and pre-register to vote. And that is not just in Florida. I mean, that is common in many states. I don't know about all states, but many states. And getting these younger people involved early on and teaching them with the meaning to vote is so important. So to that end, what do you see as like the future of Voters of Tomorrow? I mean, it's been there. It's been around for now about almost two years. Um, it's grown substantially. Uh, so where do you see it going over the next six months to a year? Dude, I, I so wish I could talk about like further than our immediate goals, but we're, right now we're focused on making sure that democracy survives for that long. Yeah. I mean, there is such a big movement that really just wants to secure power at any cost, even if that means getting rid of the systems that got them elected. And that means that we really have to fight to build a new generation of democracy defenders, as I like to call them, which means we have to make sure that democracy survives, not just for us, but for those who come after us. So we're working 
our respective asses off to make sure that we're electing people who care about democracy and to make sure we're voting out people who don't. We're, we're working in the California recall. We are going to be going into the Virginia governor's election. And right. we have so much shit planned for 2022. I mean, I, I keep joking that I'm losing hair over politics, <laughs> but like I, I'm actually losing hair over 22 just because we have so much planned that it, it's going to be, it's going to be, they, the anti-democratic forces in government won't know what hit them. Mm. That, that, that's Santiago, awesome. let me just say that you you look great, so don't worry about that. Okay, I think we I think we all know that you look great. So I don't know if you're fishing for compliments with that one, but you're looking pretty fantastic lately. So don't worry about well, that. Well, I really I really appreciate that. <laughs> um, and and so you you said that in in 2022 we are fighting for democracy as we were in 2020, and that is that is so true. I preach to everyone that I can that this in a way this midterm is a presidential election mm-hmm. because if we let the GQP take over and, you know, win back the Senate and the house, they are not planning to allow a free and fair election to take place. They will <clears throat> want to suppress votes to deny votes. They will want to overturn elections in, in incredibly anti-democratic, obviously an un-American way. So how do you message to young people who are who are starting to get into politics, who are interested in politics? How do you message the gravity of this moment in a in an exciting way, in a way that's maybe not as scary as like America's on the line here, which it is. But but in a way where it's let's get excited to fight back against these people who are who are trying to take your democracy away from you? How, how do you message that in a way that's exciting and not as fearful? There, There's a few things. I mean, I think we're all tired of hearing that this election is the most important election of our lifetimes yes. because we've heard that's it true. nonstop. We've heard it a lot. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we've heard it for three, four, maybe even five years. Some of but, them have been true. Some of, of them oh, have no, been Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. I think they have all been true. Yes, because yeah. starting in 2016, every election is the most important election of our lifetimes. Because yes. right now we're not dealing with another with another with another political party. Right now we're dealing with the Jim Crow faction, as they call them, and these are the people who are willing to put everything on the line to secure power, who don't care about democracy, who don't care about racial or gender equality. These are people who will do anything to secure power with a with minority support. And when we try to talk to young, to young people, that is what they what we tell them. I mean, as much as I like to be giddy and be happy and be optimistic, there it gets to a point where you have to be straight and you have to be honest with people. Mm-hmm. And talking with young people, the best way to get them to understand that democracy the u.s and the world is on the line mm-hmm. is by telling them that it is on the line that's true and listen sometimes there's sometimes we can make more optimistic arguments i mean we still have time to act on climate change and try to decrease some of the worst parts of it how do we do that we elect people who believe in climate change how do we fix the broken healthcare system we elect people who think it can to, who think it has to be fixed those are ways to get people excited. Getting candidates who believe in what they're saying is a way to get people excited. But in order to get them engaged, you have to be honest. You have to tell them what's actually happening. And the fact is that democracy is on the line. 
I, I completely agree. And, and I think that's something that you do such a great job of. You're a straight shooter. You don't bullshit yep. with anyone. And you're very honest about what, what needs to be accomplished and what you can accomplish. And, and I think that's tremendously important in getting young people engaged. Yeah, definitely. Um, so you mentioned a little bit about um, the fact that we really are at a crossroads, even though we are at one every cycle, we really are at one this year. Um, but a lot of, there are plenty of Gen Zers and even millennials um, who don't necessarily agree with everything the Democratic Party stands for and don't necessarily even identify as Democrats. How do you message to those folks who are maybe on the fence and say, listen, I was a Republican, but I don't feel like the Republican Party um, that I belong in the modern day Republican Party, or I'm just center right. I believe in a lot of progressive issues, but I just don't feel like I belong. How, how do you get, how do you drag those people to vote for these pro-democracy candidates? There, there's, again, like everything I've said, there's a few ways. I mean, I think if you're talking broadly, the best way to do it is to show that we're a broad coalition. You can, you have Joe Manchin and AOC under the same roof. And that, yep. that goes to show something. Right now, we're allied with Liz fucking Cheney, which I mean, <laughs> never in my life, never did I think I would be supporting a Cheney in a primary. But, but here but we here are. We that's are. the state, that's the state of democracy. Democracy is in such peril that we had to step up and say, yeah, Liz Cheney, let's do this thing together. You and I, let's yeah. get it done. And it is, it is so weird and it feels so weird, but that's, that's one way to do it. That's talking broadly. If I'm talking to someone one-on-one, -on -one, it's a whole other strategy because even though they might be more conservative, they have, most of them at least, really good values. And most of them will agree on, with you on the, on the basics. People should not go bankrupt because they have cancer. Yes. Kids should not be getting shot in school. 100%. People, the world should not be burning and Gen Z should have the ability should have the option to choose to have children without worrying that those children will witness the end of the world. <laughs> those are, and it, it sounds like a joke, but those are all conversations I've had with former Republicans or people who still consider themselves Republican today. And the way to message to them is not just with slogans. It's not a come support Medicare for all. It's not a come support mm -hmm. universal healthcare. It's talking about the specifics of what each policy should do. And maybe they still won't support a policy, and that's absolutely fair. I mean, I think having that discourse is good for democracy. Mm -hmm. But they will understand where you're coming from. And when you understand where someone is coming from, it is so much easier to find common ground. Yeah. So I, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was, I was just going to say that I think it's important to have those conversations. And when you, you do that and you show them that the people who you're asking them to vote for have similar beliefs to them, even if they don't exactly agree on on, on the details that is so that is so meaningful on so many levels and it, it's the best way that I've found to get people to convince people to vote for, for pro-democracy candidates yeah I mean I think that we um, I, I think there's there we really are a big tent party and I say this a lot in that we agree Republicans independents Democrats sensible ones agree on 85% of the issues, right? Yes. It's a matter of fact, it's a matter of whether or not we let the remaining 15% dictate whether we can get that 85% done. Mm. Unfortunately, right now, so many Republicans um, just want to bicker over that 15% without actually getting the rest of it done. And, and I'll say, I'll say, I mean, it's not even just Republicans. I've, I've, I've repeatedly come under fire from some of the more left-leaning accounts on Twitter because 
I, I've said I don't support Medicare for all. And people comment me, why should people die because they don't have health care? But it's not that I don't support people having health care part. Right. I obviously think everyone should have health care. My issue with Medicare for all is the tiniest of all issues. It's literally the 1% of the policy that would outlaw private insurance. I don't think outlawing private insurance would be a good thing. I think you have to keep a balance and help balance out the system. If people can afford private insurance, they don't have to use public insurance. And that means you can use that for people who need it. And that's just the way I view stuff. And that slight disagreement has cost me so much issues when interacting with some of the most more left-leaning accounts. But like you said, I mean, will we let that small disagreement fracture our working relationship? Will we let it get in the way of us accomplishing the other 99% of things we agree with? I don't think it's worth it. I think mm-hmm. I think we work together to achieve what we agree on and then we fight about what we disagree on. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm, I have always been of the belief, and I think we all are, that politics is not polarizing, but politicians are, slogans right. are, you know, these, these broad, not ideas, but here's the pitch that that can be polarizing. We do agree. And that's why I think young people messaging, you know, voters of tomorrow messaging, being honest and having real conversations about issues instead of polarizing candidates who are only trying to be divisive because it it works in their favor, not bullshitting, being straight up, actually discussing policy is the way that we can truly build those bridges uh, and have a more functioning government uh, instead of allowing politicians for their own profit to polarize us, which I think is what we see in the modern Republican Party more than anything is polarization for profit. Um, I, I, I fully agree. And I mean, my policy team is going to get angry at me for putting that, this out here. But one of the reasons they are all amazing and I love them so much because they've been working so hard on this. Because we're putting together a policy platform that broadly represents Gen C and the way we're doing it is exactly what you said. We're not using slogan. We're not using pitches. We're going straight into what Generation C wants. And surprisingly, that's pretty much the same thing across partisan across party lines. Many people want a stop to gun violence. Many people want climate action. The thing that polarizes all generations, even Gen Z, is the fact that there's slogans and there's names and there's marketing across specific mm-hmm. policy. If you read what the Green New Deal says, it pulls significantly higher than if you call it the Green New Deal. Right, that, that <laughs> and is there's true. a yeah, and there's a reason for that because people support what's in the policy, but they've been they've been told they can't support the policy itself by people that they trust, whether that's their family, whether that's a news host, whether that's a politician. And we're not doing that. We're building a really, really, really fucking long platform that has all the details on what policy we actually support down to, down to the teeth. So, and I, and I think that's a perfect transition into our action item for this week's episode. Santiago, how can young people who are interested um, join voters tomorrow, voters of tomorrow, and how can they help in this movement of, for democracy? Yeah, listen, we're, we're right now looking for young leaders across the country who are willing to help promote democracy and push it forward. And there's several ways to do that. I mean, we're always looking for volunteers of any age who can hop on and be a part of this movement. 
Right now, we're especially looking for high school or college students who are willing to lead either an entire state or a school chapter. Leading a chapter is literally registering a club with your school and being a part of the movement and doing stuff at the local level because local shit matters and it matters yes, so it much does. more than you can imagine. Yes, yes it, it does. matters so much. So we're looking for students who are willing to do that and who are willing to support the movement at the local level. And if you if you are qualified and if you're interested enough and if you are willing to put in the work, we'd love to have you at the state level as well. As well. I mean, we we need people who are committed to defending democracy. And if that's you, then we would love to have you. Yeah. And in Santiago, this is the Zoomed In podcast. We are a, a Gen Z podcast, but that does not mean that we are not a podcast for all generations. So you have talked a lot about the great opportunities students have with voters of tomorrow. But for our voters of yesterday and one election ago or two elections ago or even 10 elections ago. The voters um, of how, today, as I call them. <laughs> the voters of today, how can everyone be a part of this broad coalition of voters of tomorrow engage and engage with your excellent organization. First of all, just follow voters of tomorrow on Twitter and Instagram. That's where Perfect. most of, that's where most of what we start. That's where most shit starts. So add voters tomorrow, just follow us there. And we have a lot of engagement opportunities and this is our website, voters of there you can sign up as a volunteer. You can donate if you have the resources to do that. We're entirely funded by grassroots donors. So anything that you can ship in will be greatly appreciated. And just read about us and maybe talk about us with some young people that you know. If if you if you have a if you have a student or have a child or have grandchildren who might be interested in helping push democracy forward, tell them about us and send them our way. We'll gladly support them. Awesome. Thank and listen, thank you, Santiago, for coming on tonight. Please follow Santiago, follow voters of tomorrow, um, donate, um, go on their website. Get involved to be a Get, part of the movement. Exactly. Do it. And we're, we're, we're going to make it happen. We're going to we're going to really push democracy forward. So, Santiago, thank you for zooming in with us tonight. Thank you so much. To have you. Thank you so much for having me. I love to doing I look forward to doing this again. Absolutely. And we will have you back soon. <laughs> yes. So I thought we would introduce a new segment in our second episode of the show, and that is going to be something that I like to call Tweets of the Week, and it's going to be when we go through some of our favorite tweets of this week, uh, some that made us laugh, some that made us think, uh, and, and just really have a good time with it. Uh, Aaron and I, well, I, and myself not as much as Aaron, you know, are very active on Twitter. Um, Aaron is actually a, a king of Twitter. If you don't follow him, then then I don't know who you follow. Um, so we would like to share some of our favorite tweets of the week, and we are going to go ahead and do that. Uh, so our first tweet comes from the Rick Wilson uh, in response to uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis rollout of the new state treatment to help fight COVID-19, announcing that the state will start dispensing uh, uh, monoclonal antibodies and the drug Regeneron. Rick says, vaccines free, mask 99 cents, Regeneron $1,500 per treatment, Calling Ron's bullshit priceless. Our next tweet comes from Palmer Report saying, ideally, the deadliest serial killer in Florida and the governor of Florida should be two different people. And I agree. Sadly, they're both Ron DeSantis. Our next tweet comes from Remove Ron founder Daniel Ulfelder saying, today, Florida Senator 
Rick Scott suggested invoking the 25th Amendment to remove President Biden. The last time Senator Rick Scott invoked a constitutional amendment was when he invoked the Fifth Amendment against criminal self-incrimination 75 times during his civil dispositions. Yes, Rick Scott is the worst senator. Uh, I'm not even sure that Rick Scott is the worst senator in Florida. That's a tough debate, uh, but we do despise him. Um, <laughs> our, our next tweet comes from at Books Fight Back. Uh, th- this was a, a, a pretty sad tweet. It said, yesterday at active shooter training, uh, we were told that if there were a shooting at our school, we could use our masks from the pandemic to stuff the bullet wounds of the children. Um, that is from a school teacher and is pretty, you know, disheartening to say the least. Um, the condition of some of the schools and the, and the mental health strains that, that that takes on children, not only having to worry about a pandemic, but potential gun violence in their school. That is honestly just, just tragic. Um, and we will close with a tweet from Dan Rather saying, ask not what your country can do for you. Vax is what you can do for your country. With that, please get vaccinated. And that was Tweets of the Week. And that is our show. Thank you so much for Zooming in with us this week. And thank you to Voters of Tomorrow Executive Director Santiago Mayer for coming on. Uh, Please follow him on Twitter and follow Voters of Tomorrow as well. Uh, And having said that, Aaron, where can the people find you? So you can find me at any of my social media handles. It's at Aaron Parnas, A-A-R-O-N-P-A-R-N-A-S. What about you, Jack? You can follow me at J.D. Cacciarella on Twitter. That's J-D-C-O-C-C-H-I-A-R-E-L-L-A. And make sure to follow the show at Zoomed In Podcast on Twitter. And also, please subscribe to the Zoomed In Podcast. That is Zoomed In by Midas Touch. Uh, subscribe, leave a review, tell us how you've enjoyed the show. Um, Tell us what you like, what you don't like. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, Thank you again for Zooming in with us. I'm Jack Cotterella, joined by Aaron Parnas. Thank you so much.